He's a prolific musician. He co-owns a bar, and he's one of the highly regarded people that you go to in Louisville if you want advice about the startup ecosystem. He's recently moved to Austin. Welcome, my friend, Zach Pennington. How are you? Hey, Shalin. How's it going? Pretty good. So, Zach, if I were to come to you for business advice and say that I wanted to start a business and there's a particular niche that I figured out, there's a particular business that I figured out, how would you determine, how would you advise me if I have the right uh, fit, if I have the right market, if I'm adding value? How do you determine that? So, I think... There's a lot of assumptions that go into starting a business, right? Yeah. Um, you know, you kind of assume there's a problem, right? And maybe a problem that you have or that your friends or coworkers have or someone you know has. Uh, you assume that the solution that you are proposing solves that problem. Um, and then you kind of assume that there's enough people out there that are willing to spend some amount of money to, you know, solve that problem. and solve it with the solution you're proposing, right? So those are kind of three of the biggest assumptions that any of us have when we're starting a business, right? Um, and so typically, if, you know, if you're a scientist, you have a hypothesis, right? That's another kind of synonym for an assumption. Sure. Um, and so it's all about, you know, testing that hypothesis, right? Um, typically, of those three things I mentioned, uh, they each have different levels of kind of certainty, Right. So you may be very certain about the problem. Maybe you are, you know, maybe you're a pharmacist and you see a problem in the pharmacy industry that you deal with every day. So you might be an expert in the problem. Um, and so that assumption could be very valid, right? That hypothesis could be fairly easy to prove to be true or to demonstrate, you know, validity, right? But um, maybe your assumption about the way to solve it might not be as solid, right? You might think this is the right solution, but when you start to get into it, you see a lot of the reasons that people don't solve it that way now, right? Um, or your assumption about how many people have that problem or how big of a problem it is for them might be way off, hmm. right? Uh, you might be like, oh man, you know, there are 7 billion people on earth. Surely a lot of them have this problem, right? But um, either fewer people have it than you think, or maybe the people that do have it don't actually care that much about it. Right. So, um, you know, I have, I have problems all the time that come up where I'm like, oh man, that's annoying. And then I just never do anything about it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or I'm like, I really wish that existed, but like not enough to go on Google and see if it exists. Right. Um, so it's really about, again, looking at your kind of core assumptions and finding a way to, test those assumptions, um, ideally in a way that's like affordable, you know, mm -hmm. somewhat quick, right? Uh, a lot of companies historically, especially big companies historically, would spend $100 million testing their assumptions, you know, okay. and they... But then they spend all that money and they haven't figured out what the pain point is and if people are right. willing to pay for that pain point. Exactly. You, they they might have just assumed, right, that's the the keyword of assumption yeah. might have assumed that the pain point was bigger than it was. They might have assumed that the solution solved the problem in a compelling way, or they might have assumed that it was a real problem when it wasn't. Uh, and you see that all the time. There's a lot of really famous examples of uh, products that had a lot of resources and then failed. Um, and that's what they ultimately failed was a lack of understanding of the problem, the market and the product. Uh, so product market fit is really like, you know, the thing you're ultimately trying to figure out early on. Yeah. So 
the people who are making all those assumptions. So how important is the team, if there is one, or the or the CEO, or the startup person? Yeah. So team is a really interesting thing because it's probably it's probably the single biggest lever that you can change. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you can't really change the market. Right. Like that's it's almost impossible to like shift the entire market. It happens, right? Like I think Apple's a good example of a company that found ways to like generate demand for things that didn't exist. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, most, most demand is kind of ethereal and just exists, right? Like people have the problems or they don't. Um, the team is something you can change though. Right. So going back to that example of being like a pharmacist mm-hmm. who sees a problem in pharmacy, Um, I may have a ton of expertise in pharmacy and the day-to-day life of a pharmacist, but I may not have any expertise in drug manufacturing, for example. Right. Right. I may understand it more than the average person, but I've never worked in manufacturing. I've never worked for a manufacturer, right? So um, if 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 that assumption about the manufacturing process matters, I can very easily or fairly easily go find someone who is also an expert in that industry. Uh, in that particular field of that industry, right? Mm-hmm. Um, manufacturing or distribution or software or whatever it is. Um, and if the problem is compelling enough, I can recruit that person to join me on the team, right? It could be an advisor, co-founder, employee, what have you. Yeah. Um, so team is interesting because, it, again, it's super malleable. Uh, a lot of people will say, I'd rather bat, bet on the jockey than the horse, mm. right? But... Um, I think there's been a lot of pushback on that kind of metaphor because I don't know about you, Shalin, but I know some pretty uh, wildly successful people who I don't think are like good business people. (laughs) (laughs) Like we all know that person who's like grandfather invented toothpaste or whatever, right? And they're like the third generation running a toothpaste R&D company and they're, they're like, you know, they drink all the time and they show up to work late. They don't respond to their emails and their company still does a hundred million dollars in sales. Right. So like I I've seen a lot of mediocre people be really successful because they had product market fit. Huh. And so I'm not saying that the team doesn't matter. I think the team's super important, but I do think that product market fit can trump a, a good team or a bad team even now. In theory, a good team should be more adept at finding product market fit, Hmm. right? But again, like if I could have 50 PhDs of, um, you know, jet propulsion trying to work on a jet pack, right? And we're all working on trying to make this like amazing jet pack and some random person could stumble upon the right way to do it. Yeah. Cost effectively, safely, you know, all that stuff and just crush it because they beat us to the punch, right? Or they got the demand, they, you know, they were on the demand curve before we were, right? And you, you see that, the kind of perfection uh, holding back, you know, progress, right? Yeah. So, you know, I think it's like, if team is the most important thing, it's, it's only the second most important thing. In the product market fit. To but product market fit. Interesting yes. that example that you gave, uh, because you have this perfect team of 50 PhDs, theoretically, Working on the jet propulsion. Uh, so then from the product ideation to taking it to the market, what are some of the challenges 
um, that a company might face? Yeah, so should they be aware of. Yeah, I mean, there, there's. I think that there's ultimately two types of business struggles, mm -hmm. right? Um, business is hard; it's not easy. Yeah. But you know, if you were to you know, if you're, if you're taking that like product market fit and team dichotomy, right, where they're both important, but maybe one could you know be more important than the other. I think most businesses, the hard, you have to think about what's the hard part. Right, because if it's easy, everyone can do it, and everyone will do it, and um, and then you'll you know margins will go away. It becomes a commodity. It's like a grind, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it becomes not worth doing almost at some point. Yeah. Right. So to me, the hard part of a business is usually either um, delivering the product, mm -hmm. right, or it's finding the customer. Okay, so in other words, operations and sales. Kind of uh, operations, but I, w I would I would say R and D, product development. It, it's making it and selling it, right? Um, some things, for example, I mentioned the jetpack thing. So, if I told you right now that I had a jetpack that would allow you to fly around Louisville, um, it was legal, it was safe, uh, it was affordable, it wasn't dangerous right it didn't it didn't pollute mm -hmm. um it was easy to use yeah. right uh and it was like a hundred bucks sure right you yeah. would buy it right yeah. i would buy it yeah of course anyone listening to this would buy it right like there would be infinite demand for that product and so in that sense the hard part of that business would not be selling the jetpack right you'd literally just put it on amazon and ebay and your own website and you'd be a billion dollar business in like two years yeah Right, yeah. the hard part in that situation is creating a jetpack that yeah. is a hundred dollars, that is safe, that is reliable, that has a good battery, that lasts long, that's legal. Right, so like making the thing is hard. Mm -hmm. uh, finding oil, mm -hmm. right? If I found oil, I live in Texas now, right? T Texas tea is what they call oil. If I found oil in my backyard right now, I wouldn't have to write a business plan, right? or hire a marketing agency to sell that oil. Yeah. I would go to the one of the like three or four companies that buy oil Yeah, and be like, I have oil, you know, and they'd be like, all right, you know, I, I mean, I'd get a lawyer and make sure like I knew the numbers were right and I wasn't getting screwed over. Right. But like, again, discovering oil, mining oil, getting it out of the ground, like that's the hard part, right? Selling oil, at least at the production level is not hard. Right. Now being a gas station is hard that, you know, downstream it's difficult and stuff like that but um similarly there's a lot of you know information uh, products is a good example of this like fitness knowledge is a commodity right right like for the most part like we kind of all know that if you eat less junk and move your body more like you'll be in better shape right and there's a thousand different ways to do it you can lift weights you can run you can jump you can you know do 10 sets of three or three sets of 10, right? So the hard part there is not making fitness products or, or fitness knowledge. It's sales and marketing, right? It's finding people who want to buy your version of that information, your packaging, your system, your process, right? Yeah. Um, creating a PDF of workouts is like an hour's worth of work, you know? Yeah. If you're a fitness person, if you already know the knowledge, right? 
So again, it's like every business problem is typically one of those two things is the hard thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you have to be, you have to ask yourself which one's the hard thing. And I would, I would bet that most people listening to this and most people that I talk to or give advice to think the hard thing is making it and think the easy thing is selling it. And like nine times out of 10, it's the, it's the opposite and they're totally wrong. Yeah. They're like, if I could just get this app built, then it'll go viral. And I'm like, going viral is way harder than building an app ever will be. Yeah. <laughs> Especially in 2020. There's like tools where you and I could build our own app in a couple hours, right? Like that's yeah. not the hard part now. The hard part is how do you get attention from human beings? Absolutely. Right. So I, I think it's about being like honest with yourself and a little bit, you know, humble about which of those is they're both difficult, right? And you can have a business where they're both difficult, right? It's like hard to build the thing and to sell the thing. Um, I would argue that one of them's going to be harder. Uh, if they're both super hard, you're probably going to fail, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. Um, so yeah. So think about it that way when you're kind of trying to evaluate, like, where do I focus my time? Um, you know, if it's harder to sell, spend all your time selling. Right. And then you, if, if I came to you, for example, let's say I came to you tomorrow and I said, Hey, Shalin, I have 5,000 pre-orders for, I'm just grabbing random stuff on my desk for these, um, these little like rubber feet that go on the end of your fingers. These like little novelty things. All right. I, I made a Facebook post and I was like, Hey, anyone want to buy some rubber feet? Click here. I sold, they went viral. I sold 5,000 of them. Uh, I only have one. Can you help me get 4,999 of these? Like, you know, a guy that knows a guy that knows a gal that knows someone in China, right? That could like knock those things out. Mm -hmm. Right. Like it would be, it would be work, but it wouldn't be a hard problem to solve. Right. Uh, I could go right now and buy 5,000 rubber feet from China, probably on Alibaba if I wanted to. Right. (laughs) Um, But then I'd have 4,999 rubber feet sitting in my, my bedroom (laughs) collecting dust. Right. Yeah. So just think again, kind of think through that when you're thinking, okay, what, where should I be focusing my energy? Sure. So that, you know, that phrase that we all like to use, if you build it, they will come. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you build a restaurant, people will come. If you build um, a manufacturing plant, then you, you will get the orders because you're the latest plant in the, in the town. Is that true anymore? Um, it is true. If, there is product market fit. Yeah. Right. Another way to say product market fit in that kind of example where you mentioned things like restaurants or bars or marketing or uh, manufacturers, excuse me, is, is the demand greater than the supply? Mm. Uh, I'll give you a, a perfect anecdote from my own life. So I have a house in Louisville. Uh, we bought it. The people before us flipped the house, but you know, they did mostly cosmetic stuff, left a lot of the kind of, you know, trees and the stumps in the yard and just stuff like that. Right. So, uh, a friend of mine, a mutual friend of ours wanted to park his school bus that he's converting into an RV, uh, in my yard. And I was like, sure, why not? <laughs> Got this big, weird, long, like lot. I'll put it in the back. Sure. And he was like, you know, I will pay to have the stumps removed in the backyard because it's, you know, I don't want to pop the tires and blah, blah, blah. Right. Like the amount of effort he and I both went through just to get someone to give us a quote for stump removal was like, it was asinine. Just to give you a quote. 
just to get like a, you know, plus or minus a hundred dollars quote of what it would cost to get six small stumps removed in, in Louisville by a Louisville based company. Wow. Right. It was like, you would think I was asking people like, how does nuclear fission or fusion work? Right. Like it, it was just so much work. Wow. And, um, what I, what we came to realize was that one guy basically told us, he was like, yeah, I'm so busy that like, I don't even like answer the phone anymore. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just like, I just keep doing the jobs I'm doing. Cause like, I don't need to, like, I don't need to do marketing. I don't, my website sucks. My phone doesn't go to voicemail. Right. Like the demand for tree trimming, stump removal, what have you in Louisville, especially, I think we had had some like pretty nasty weather in the past month or two. Um, was just so high that the 10 to 15 people that do that for a living were so busy that none of them gave a shit. Okay. Right. And they didn't have, or, you know, they didn't really have to, right? Like it was just, they just didn't care. Um, and so if my, bu my buddy and I joked kind of half, half joked, like, let's go buy one of these machines on eBay. They're 25 grand, you know, it'll pay itself off in three months. Yeah. Our website will say, we answer the phone. We show up. Those are like our two lines on our website. Right. Call this number. We answer. We show up. Yeah. And we'll charge three times as much and we'll still be busy, right? So yeah. it's like when the supply and the demand curve is all whack like that. Now you go to something else like look at like CBD, right? True. So CBD has exploded in popularity, but I would argue that C CBD products and distribution has actually outpaced demand. And so you'll see stores selling CBD products that like you would never expect to sell them, right? Right. Uh, and they may be doing well. I, that's, that's the thing I don't really know. But it's like, it seems like everywhere. So it's like, oh, the Louisville Public Library now offering CBD. What? Right. No, I'm just like, that's like, <laughs> I'm being a little facetious there. But um, <laughs> you, know, you just see, uh, again, when like the supply, go, it, it's, I hate to say economics 101 because a lot of a lot of basic economics concepts don't actually work because people are super irrational, right? And that's what all, Freakonomics is all about, but uh, or behavioral economics. But but yeah, you know, it's just uh, apps. There's a reason that it's <clears throat> excuse me. There's a reason that it's it's like pulling teeth to get someone to pay ninety nine cents to download an app. Yeah. Right. And yeah. then and then entrepreneurs or would be entrepreneurs go. You know, people pay $5 for a coffee. But they're not going to pay that 99 cents for an app. I'm like, yeah, but you know what else people do? People use multi-billion dollar products for free every day. Yeah. Facebook probably has like a trillion dollars of development into it and it's free. Yeah. Right now, is it really free, right? You're selling your like privacy and data and all that stuff. But like your crappy little $10,000 app that barely does anything is 99 cents. That's way more expensive than free. Right. You know, yeah. Facebook is, again, it's a multi-billion dollar product and I don't have to pay a cent to use it. So it's, it's like that perceived value and, and, but also supply, right? There's an infinite number of apps I could download for free. Mm. So for yours to be 99 cents, it must be really good, right? right? It must solve a very, very, and it's funny because I pay $20 for like crappy food all the time. Yeah. But if it's like there and I'm hungry and it's in front of me and I, I don't have a lot of other options, it's like, sure, I'll pay 20 bucks for a, you know, crappy burger and fries at like a theme park, right? <laughs> like it's like they have a monopoly over supply. 
I guess it also goes back to addressing that pain point. You're hungry, you have $20 in your pocket and you, you see the food. And right there right in front of me. Happens. And yeah, yeah, and if I could download a free version of the food on my phone, I would do it. <laughs> yeah. I would much rather do that than pay $20 for this crappy carnival burger. Yeah. <laughs> but that, unfortunately, the supply is low, right? So, yeah. Earlier in one of your live sessions, we had spoken about Amazon having a niche. And it didn't, I didn't realize it before I asked the question, but I do understand it now. Mm -hmm. For someone to have a long tail of so many products, uh, such as Amazon or Walmart, and to still categorize them as being a niche company. Mm -hmm. So how do you do that? So, you know, the word niche is like, a, it's, a, it's another buzzword, right? It's something us, us businessy, MBA, startup-y folks, right? We love to throw around. Yeah. Cool jargon vocab. Yeah. I would argue it's probably some sort of um, some sort of like we want, you know, we're jealous of lawyers and doctors because they get to do it. So we come up with our own specialty words. I think everyone does it, but I think you know, it's like, oh, I'm I'm a niche marketer, you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the point I made was, you know, uh like how how big can something be and still be a niche, right? Yeah. Um, and again, that's kind of in the eye of the beholder, but I think I think that there's a few factors here. <clears throat> so, I I brought up Amazon because again, they're literally one of the biggest companies in the world. Mm -hmm. But when you think about everything that Amazon does, they all have one thing in common, which is that they basically use the internet to move physical stuff around for the most part, right? They do move digital products like Kindle. They do have AWS, but they're basically a tech company, right? So they're not an energy company. They're not really a transportation company. I mean, they do, they're starting to own some vans and some planes, right? But they didn't manufacture those vans. They didn't manufacture those planes, right? Like Boeing did, Chrysler did, Mercedes, whatever, Daimler Chrysler. Um, you know, they don't, they don't like sell blood, right? Like they don't, you know, they don't develop pharmaceuticals. Um, they're finally in the food business once they bought Whole Foods, mm. right? Um, but prior to that, they were a niche company if you'd compare them to Walmart because Walmart was selling everything that Amazon sells categorically, not every single item. Right, right. But they were also a grocery store. So in theory, they were like less niche than Amazon, mm. right? So... You know, you can use that word niche to to be like really narrow and to say, I only sell this very specific thing to this specific subset of people. But again, it, it's it's more about like your lens, like how zoomed in or out are you? You know, again, Apple, one of the biggest companies in the world, um, they basically sell tech products that are essentially communication and creation devices. Mm -hmm. And they have kind of ancillary services that, that go around that, but like that's all they do. Right. <laughs> you know, like again, they do a lot of it. They're really good at it. Yeah. But again, like until they start making cars, which I know they're working on, or until they start, you know, launching satellites into space, or until they start doing um, snack bars, right? Like we think about these like conglomerates or these kind of like massive, you know, evil corporations that do everything. Again, P&G is a good example of this. Like they pretty much only make like consumer products, right? Um, 
you know, now some of the consumer product companies like start to get into healthcare and expand, right? Uh, pharma and that. But even then, it's like they make consumable physical stuff. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not downloading the PNG app to like, you know, upload videos of me dancing to make my friends laugh. Right? Like they still kind of have this like slightly, you know, walled garden of what they do. So it's, it's so big. All these companies are so big. They sell multiple products within different segments, mm-hmm. but still the industry is still the same. Or just kind of like the mechanism that they use to make money. Yeah. Right? Like even Google making phones, like when you, when you go from a software company to a hardware company, that's a pretty big jump. Sure. Right? Because there's, there's a very different set of problems that hardware companies have. Mm-hmm. Like stuff breaks and you can't touch it unless someone gives it back to you. Right. Right. Like if my, if my website breaks or if you break my website using it, I can fix it remotely. Right. But if you break your phone, I can't fix your phone. Yeah, right. You see yeah. what I'm saying? Like you have to physically like give me your phone back. Uh, so that's a big jump. But if you look at Google's phones, A, they're partnering with other manufacturers, right? And then B, their phones are running an OS that's ultimately like all roads lead to search. Yeah. Right. It's like another way for you to use their mail program, their um, search program, their browser. Mm-hmm. And all of that's just a way for them to get personalized data to sell you ads. Sure. It's like their entire business model is like super simple. They do 50 right. things, but they all just lead to one like core business model. Mm. You know, and same thing with Amazon. Like Amazon's core business model is making things faster and cheaper and easier. And those things used to be books mm-hmm. and then it was everything. And then it was cloud infrastructure. Now it's shipping, right? Like right. But that's, that's their whole, like they're not making luxury goods, right? Like Amazon's not selling, they're not building like Trump style hotels yet, right? Like who knows if they might, but even if they built a hotel, it would be like half the price of a Hyatt, mm-hmm. you know, and it'd be like as good or slightly worse, but it, like it would be so cheap that you wouldn't care. Right. It wouldn't be five grand a night to stay at the Amazon hotel, <laughs> right? Yeah. That's a different bit. Apple could build a $5,000 a night hotel and people would go there every night. Absolutely. When you're a startup or a small business, at what point do you decide to bring in accountants or lawyers? Uh, I would say most people bring them in way too early. Okay. And I probably bring them in way too late. <laughs> so... There, there's a saying which is it's better to own a part of something valuable than all of something worthless. Sure. You know, bigger, bigger pie, you hear that, kind of like a small piece of a big pie. Yeah. I think a lot of people, a lot of new entrepreneurs think that you have to go through all these kind of expensive formal processes to establish um, protect, legitimize, whatever your business Yeah. before it can be a business, right? Yeah. The problem is going back to what we discussed earlier, that's not the hard part, right? The hard part is either making the thing or selling the thing. Right. Like incorporating is not hard. It's, it's a very well-established process um, if your business is complicated, there are lawyers who know how to do it. And if your business is simple, you can do it yourself. 
right? Yeah. But either way, it's it's easy to do. Right. Right. It's e- if it's complicated, it's easy for the lawyer to do it. Right. Because they've done it before. Right. Uh, again, inventing a jetpack that's safe, affordable, reliable, legal, all that, that's way harder than incorporating any business structure. Right. Right. Selling a niche product that no one's ever heard of that does something that no one's ever thought of, that's really hard to do. Setting up a, a chart of accounts in QuickBooks is not difficult. <laughs> are you, so are you saying that uh, when you're starting something out or when you're a small business, you should be more focused on your sales portion, maybe your sales team, um, uh, instead of focusing so much early on, focusing so much on the accountants and the lawyers? Yes, because that's the thing that proves that it's worth doing the other thing. There you go. So the advice I typically give someone is I say, wait until someone writes you a check mm-hmm. with the name of your business on it to incorporate your business and to get a bank account with your business's name on it. Yeah. Right. Because everything up until that point is a thought exercise. Right. Right. It's a fantasy. Sure. Um, I, I, a good friend of mine who I'm sure you know, Steve Huey. Uh, they started their company Capture on a PowerPoint deck. And the PowerPoint deck wasn't for investors, it was for customers. And he's told the story a bunch of different times. I'm going to butcher all the details of it, but the core you know, concepts are there, which is he and a couple people he knew who are already in the ed tech space, so they had that like, you know, product uh, market fit knowledge, but assumptions, went into what they assumed would be a potential customer of theirs pitch them the idea of what they were doing, screenshots or whatever, just like literally slides Mm -hmm. and said, we could build this for you. Um, You know, and it's going to be, I don't know what the number was, $500,000 or something. And they're like, sounds good. Where do we, who do we make the check out to? Right? Like that's validation. And that validation, if you have someone writing you a $500,000 check, you should feel a lot better spending five grand incorporating and five grand on accounting and right, like all these things. Right. I've seen people, and I've personally done this. I'm not like, oh, I'm so smart. I've never done this. Like I've spent hundreds, if not thousands of dollars establishing a business that no one wanted to exist. <laughs> and you don't get that money back. Yeah. You can't go to the law firm and be like, hey, turns out no one wants to buy like booger flavored ice cream. (laughs) Could I get a refund on my (laughs) $3,000? Right. They go, oh, you know, sorry, Johnny, you learned, you learned your lesson this time. Right. So it's like, go get sales or again, if that's the hard thing or go build the hard thing, like tinker in your garage. I saw some tweet going around about like, Amazon, Apple, and HP were all started in garages. They're worth trillions of dollars, blah, 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 right? Like, go build a jetpack. Yeah. You don't need to be incorporated to build a jetpack, right? Right. You have a personal debit card, buy stuff on eBay and Amazon to buy parts on Alibaba or whatever. You don't, like, you could always later, if you really need to, you could re- reimburse yourself and log those expenses as reimbursements and all that, right? Um, but don't waste money building infrastructure for something that doesn't need to exist. Right. When you don't even have a minimum viable product. You have no product market fit. You have no prototypes. You have no customers. Like then why do you have like, what are you tracking? 
yeah. the money, the money you're setting on fire. Like I'd rather not know how much money I'm burning. Yeah. Right. It's a hobby, right. Until it, and once it starts to be accounted for and have to pay taxes on it, it's not a hobby anymore. Right. It's not fun. It's yeah. real. Yeah. You know? So, so let's see you go through all those exercises now in the startup world, uh, especially when it's outside money, when you have taken outside money, mm-hmm. it's expected of you that you want to exit the business at some point. Sure. Yep. Um, for a small business, it's kind of frowned upon because you've built it. Maybe your your family has built it, and so you don't want to sell it unless you absolutely have to for whatever reasons. Sure. Um, just curious to see what your thoughts are on that. Like, why is it looked down upon? You know, it, I don't look down on it, so it's it's hard for me to relate, but. I actually, I think a lot about the opposite, which is the obsession of selling the business, even when it's investor backed. Mm -hmm. Um, There were a lot of businesses that didn't sell. Um, Netflix, uh, friends and I were actually joking about this the other day. Netflix uh, tried to sell themselves to Blockbuster for $50 million. Right. Right. And Blockbuster laughed them out of the room is like the whole story, right? And now what are they worth? Like five billion, fifty billion? I have no idea. They're huge, right? Yeah. You you would own you would rather own shares in Netflix than every existing blockbuster on the world, right? Um which so is, go ahead. Which is one. Yeah, the 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 last blockbuster Twitter account. Yeah. That's my favorite. Um so right, like the obsession with selling is like it's a quick win, it's a way to return capital, it's a way to um demonstrate value and it's also a way to compensate founders who are grossly undercompensated during the process right because you often make zero dollars or 50 percent of market rate or you put in a bunch of money mm-hmm. uh, you kind of want to pay out right uh which i get i mean, I think i think i i think that way when i'm you know thinking about the potential future of business but a small business is different because Small businesses tend to have two things in common. One, they tend to have a lot of the owner's identity tied up in the kind of the brand and the operations, Mm -hmm. right? Like people think of, you know, the old guy who had the recipes when he started the restaurant or right, or like this is grandma's business and I'm the grandson or whatever, right? Um, But if you build a small business that's worth buying, that's a huge accomplishment, right? Because most small businesses aren't worth buying. Yeah. Right. Like Mm -hmm. if you came to me tomorrow and said, Hey Zach, I have a karaoke bar uh, that I want to sell you. And I was like, how's, you know, how's it going? You're like, well, we don't really have any sales or our building kind of sucks. And you know, it needs to be rebuilt. I'm like, well, I'll just do that myself. Like, why would I buy your crappy version of what I would do? Right. Right. But, if you came to me and you're like, hey man, I have this business, it's making a ton of money, it's in a great location, it has huge brand recognition, people love it, the employees are great. You know, I'm just like, I need to move on or I've got, you know, I wanna spend my money on my family or I wanna move out of the country, whatever, right? Like I have a reason to get out of this thing. Yeah. Like the fact that someone would be willing to take that over and pay for that, I think is a huge accomplishment. Even more than selling a tech startup, right? Because tech startups are like built to sell. Hmm. Like small businesses are not designed to be sold. Right. They're designed to be run, hopefully profitably, right? Hopefully for a long period of time. But like you rarely hear about 
one person buying one restaurant, right? Yeah. Cause again, like for the amount of money I would give you for that restaurant, I'll just start my own restaurant. Absolutely. Now, if you have 50 units and they're all profitable and they're in, you know, all 50 states, right? Like that's worth buying. Like private equity companies will buy that, bigger chains will buy that. And you know. So I, I don't think it's I don't think it's selling out. I, I think that phrase selling out is really funny. I come from the music world too, and that's like especially I was like a big punk rocker and that's like the ethos, like don't sell out, you know, the man, the government fight it all, you know, never sell out. And to me, selling out was never about being successful. It was about, it was about doing something that you wouldn't do if it weren't for the money. Right. Right. So selling a successful business is not selling out. Yeah. Right. But like if you have this, let's say, you know, we both love Shalimar, right? Like if you have this successful Indian restaurant and it's like a staple in the community. Right. And then tomorrow they're like, all right, we do kale and um, we're a kale smoothie joint now. Yeah. It's- You're just like, why? <laughs> like <laughs> you guys have a good thing going. Like don't just like chase some stupid trend, right? Like be yourselves. Like mm-hmm. that's selling out, right? But if Sal, if Shalimar were to go to five locations instead of one, that's not selling out. And if, if they were to be sold to another Indian chain, like that's not selling out, right? Selling out is like giving up who you are just to make a buck. Losing your identity. Yeah. Selling your soul. That's like right. selling out should literally be called selling your soul because that's what it is, right? It's like if you have a soul, like musicians do all the time where it's like, oh, they, their music's more poppy and they did that to make money. And I'm like, unless they actually like the music. Like if the new poppy music is good and they like the music, then they're not sellouts. Right. Yeah. But if you're playing some crap you hate just to make a buck, then you're a sellout. That's all like, yeah. even if you're in a cover band making 50 bucks of a night on the weekends, mm-hmm. playing music that you would never listen to otherwise, it's, that person's a bigger sellout yeah. than the punk band that got on MT- like Green Day, right? It's like, oh, they're sold out. It's like, no, they, they're making the music they want to make and getting a shit ton of money for it. Like, it's not like they're making, you know, trap music or something, you know, it's like something they don't want to make. Right. Like, I don't know. I, I hate that phrase. I, I grew up again, like high school punk rock was all about not selling out. And I, I just, my opinion on that has morphed so much over the years. <laughs> all right. So I'm in my garage. I haven't incorporated yet. I'm building the MVP. I'm yep. picking my uh, PowerPoint deck to customers. Yep. When do I know that I have enough that I'm able to quit this as a side hustle and pay full-time attention to it as a legit business? Is it after the first dollar or after the first $100,000? When is that? Yeah. So it's interesting because I've personally seen uh, a pretty wide spectrum of people uh, doing this. So I've seen, I had a friend, actually someone you probably know as well, he was a banker full-time, you know, worked for a bank. Um, I don't know how much he made, six figures probably, right? Uh, was doing well there. He had a low, mid, six-figure side business. And he was like, I really want to grow it. I really want to make it bigger. And we were all like, well, then quit your job and do it. Like, you have a real company, you know? Like, you have a $250,000, like, revenue business that you're doing on the side. Like, it could be bigger. And he's like, eh, I kind of like my day job. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it was just like, and he just never did. He just never quit his day job, but his side business did well, right? And so 
you know, he might be an extreme example, but he's an example that you don't necessarily have to quit your day job. Mm. Um, that said, there, there's kind of, I, I love, I always draw charts of the like where the two lines cross, right? Yeah. And that's called the sweet spot. And you can do it for like anything, right? Um, I, like, for example, to me, Taco Bell is at the sweet spot, <laughs> right? Which is like the flavor to price line. Yeah. Because there's much better tasting food than Taco Bell. Right. And there's food that's as cheap as Taco Bell, but for the money, uh-huh. like dollars per unit of joy, Taco Bell is like some of the best food. I think Subway is too. Right. Um, right. It's just high value. Um, same thing with your business, right? Which is like at some point, you know, if you make 30 grand a year mm-hmm. at your day job and you get a client that's going to pay you four grand a month to like do marketing for them, quit your job tomorrow. Yeah. You're like already better off than you were, right? right. If you're an anesthesiologist and you make like 500 grand a year and you get someone to pay like $10, $10 to download your ebook, like don't quit your job, <laughs> right? Like you're not at the sweet spot yet, right? Um, and I think people overestimate how much time it takes to run a business on a daily basis because that's like, Oh, what do you mean? It's not hard. No, it's super hard. But also so much of running a business is you push a ball towards someone else or you pass the ball. Let's use actual like sports metaphors. And then you're just waiting for the ball to come back. Yeah. Like I could send a hundred sales emails right now using, you know, a sales tool or a script or whatever. And it's going to, it's going to take people to anywhere between five minutes and five weeks to respond to those emails. Yeah. If they respond at all. <laughs> right. So it's like, if you, if it's something you can do one to two hours a day, mm-hmm. uh, and again, try to get it to where there's like that critical mass point. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll know, I feel like you'll know. Um, but the big mistake that people make is they, they say, I can't do it if I don't quit my full-time job. Hmm. And, you know, again, if you have kids and you have, a, you know, taking care of elderly parents and you have two full-time jobs, like, yeah, you probably can't, right? Like, I'm not saying everyone has a bunch of bandwidth, but you could probably go land one big customer in your free time. Yeah do what Steve Huey did, right? Like go find a university who's willing to cut you a six figure check on a PowerPoint deck. And again, that's easier said than done. But if you have really good product market fit, it happens. Yeah. You know, pitch your idea to customers. And at some point you'll feel like, okay, I got to, you know, it's like, it's me or the dog or it's me or the kids, right? Like there's like those shows or something. It'll be like, at some point it'll be like, it's the job or the business and you'll know. Yeah. Right, but don't feel like you have to give up one to do the other. I know plenty of people. Bill Burke's a good friend of mine who did this really well. He said, "I'm going to get up at 5 a.m. every day," and I'm not. I don't get up at 5 a.m. I'm not like I'm wearing a shirt that says "Don't fear the hustle." I could just as easily be wearing a shirt that says like "Hustling is overrated." <laughs> <laughs> like I get up, you know, I get up when I get up. Right. But when I get up, I do a lot of stuff. I make stuff happen. And again, half of my job is I say any updates, mm-hmm. and I have to wait three days to get a response. Like, what am I going to do for the next three days? Start another business. <laughs> Cause sitting there staring at my inbox isn't productivity. Right. Yeah. So you'll know, you know, and it's different for every person. Like I mentioned earlier, right. Yeah. If you make a lot of money, if you're the sole breadwinner in the house, if you have kids, if you have a mortgage, like you're, 
your curve looks different than someone else's curve, right? If you're a 20 year old college dropout, like your curve is going to look a lot different, right? Right. Like you probably only need to make 500 bucks off your app to quit your job making $0 as right. an intern, right? You know, so yeah. It's all about finding that sweet spot based on a person's current day job, mm-hmm. availability of the business and all the other considerations that go into it. So yeah. then what point uh, should a sole entrepreneur bring on a co-owner and what are the pitfalls of doing everything alone? So I think co-founders, I've had a lot of co-founders because I've been involved in a lot of different businesses um, and I've had you know positive and negative experiences, right? Um, to me, a co-founder needs to be someone who <clears throat> does two things. They they fill a gap that you are incapable of filling yourself, right? The yeah. most common kind of dichotomy of, um, or trichotomy, if that's a word, of co-founders would be like the person who's good at selling things, the person who's good at making things. Right. And then maybe, you know, if it's software or a product, like a person who's good at making things beautiful or consumable, pretty easy to read, whatever, right? The des- hacker hustler designer, some people call it that. Right. Um, Nori Bar is a really good example of this. Like I had a really big vision for what I wanted the space to be, but I am not currently capable of like building something out myself, right? So one of my business partners is a general contractor and he did a lot of the, uh, a lot of the remodeling himself. And then the things he didn't do, he had to subcontract out, but he knew how to do that, right? Like he knew the difference between a good estimate and a bad estimate and good quality work and bad quality work, right? Um, so co-founders are good when the person has a complementary skill set. Now that said, they also have to have a complementary risk profile, right? Okay. So if I'm willing to go all in, put my savings in, quit my job, leave my wife, live in a, my car, whatever it is, right? Like if I'm willing to do all that stuff and you're not, that's fine. That's totally okay. Maybe you have a good job as a developer, uh, as a, doctor or whatever like you either have to be willing to do one of two things either put in free time that you have Mm -hmm. give me your free time all of it you know or as much of it as possible and or put in money that i don't have right right so one of my other business partners in the karaoke bar is an attorney and you know he has a he has a normal job right like a full-time job in a way that me and my other partner don't like we have stuff we do right um but you know, one of the ways he makes up for that in addition to working in his off time and breaks and whatever is he can put money into things, right? Like he can say, okay, I'm willing to contribute towards paying for that because I don't have the bandwidth to do it myself. Right. Right. So it's like he's adding value where he's best suited to add value in that moment. And so, and similarly, we're able to borrow money because of his W2 income, right? Or my partner's like assets, right? So it's like we're all we're all contributing what we're capable of contributing. Yeah. Uh, when you do it alone, you typically lack something, mm-hmm. right? You either lack expertise or capital or time. Mm-hmm. And so co-founders usually get you one or more of those things. Mm. Um, now, once you hit critical mass of some sort, whether it's through product market fit and you have revenue or you've raised money because the investors believe you have product market fit or just are onto something, uh, then you can start to actually hire people. Mm-hmm. And that's a very different relationship. 
Um, Gary V talks about this and I have a love hate relationship with Gary V, but, um, I saw one of my favorite quotes of his was he was at some conference and someone asked, how do I get my employees to work as hard as I do? They, they won't. Yeah. Right. This is like, I wish Kartik were here with us right now, our mutual friend Kartik. Cause he's that guy. He's like, how come my employees don't work as hard as I do? And I'm like, Kartik, they're your employees. That's not their business. Right. Who like stop expecting them to work as hard as you do. Right. <laughs> and so Gary V said, he's like, give them 50% of the company. Yeah. If you expect someone to give as much of a shit about this as you do, yeah. give them half the business. Yeah. And then the person's like, what? And he's like, if not, then why would you expect like, their risk reward profile looks, their curves look different than yours, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. If I'm getting a hundred grand to do a job, but I have no equity, like I have different incentives than you do. Yeah. Someone comes along and offers me 150 and equity to go help them build their dream. Like, Why you not? know, yeah. maybe my loyalties shift a little bit. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's okay. Right. Like you have to be like, it's okay for relationships to be what they are. Yeah. You know, but you have to be like, honest about that. And I think now I do think having too many co-founders is a problem. Mm. Once you start to get like past four, I just think the dynamics don't work. Yeah. It's hard enough to have two people who are like equally motivated and equally like, you know, thoughtful and equally like fair and equitable, like having four people, that's trick five, oh, 17. No. Hey Zach. So you've mentioned that the day that you got your liquor license, um, you know, there was a, there was a statewide shutdown mm -hmm. of bars yep. and you had to wait for, because of COVID and then yep. you had to wait, what, four months, five months to get it reopened. Basically. Yeah. Uh, walk us through the journey. So, you know, March 16th, we finally get our liquor license after, you know, 16 months, I think of renovations and, business planning and hiring and training and sure. design and all this stuff. Uh, and then, yeah, like an hour later we get a statewide shutdown notice, uh, not us personally, but just Kentucky in general. Right. Um, and you know, it's, it was, it, 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 the metaphor I keep using is it was like Charlie Brown where he goes to kick the football and Lucy pulls it away and he falls, you know? Yeah. Uh, it felt like that. Yeah. So, we were kind of on hold and, and everyone was on hold, right? In yeah. some, some capacity. But um, I think what's hard is we, we had so much momentum, right? And that's why I like that metaphor of trying to kick the football is yeah. it's not that the football gets removed and he just goes, ah, come on. It's like he runs, kicks as hard as he can. Right. The football moves and he like does a flip and falls on his butt, right? Yeah. Um, that's what it felt like, right? Because we're like, we ordered drinks we got staff we, it's like we're so ready we've got all this money all this time all this effort um and then you're like sorry guys we're all we're closed we're all furloughed like um and also we have to keep putting money in right because some of our bills we could turn off or reduce and other bills we couldn't yeah um but it was happening to everyone yeah and i think it's important to have perspective mm -hmm. in life in general and business specifically which is like this isn't our fault um, there are a lot of people who are a lot worse off than we are both individually and even as businesses. And so like you can't really, you can't really decide what's going to happen to you in life, but you can decide how you're going to react to it. Right. 
you may have that initial gut emotional reptilian brain reaction of like, ah, this sucks. You know, why me <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. But then when you kind of like take the frontal lobe, you know, advanced homo sapien parts of your brain and go, okay, look, the guy across the street, he's struggling. The lady down the street, she's struggling. You know, people are getting sick. People are dying, right? Like it could be so much worse. Um, then you just, yeah, it just gives you a little bit of humility. Um, and then the cool thing is when you go through a hard time, and I think this is personal too, not just professional. It like, it shows you not just who you are, but also who the people around you are, right? The way your partners react, the way your employees react. Like our staff was like, they barely had worked there. I mean, two of our staff members had been working there a long time trying to help us get it ready. But the rest of the staff had like maybe been there, some of them two or three days of training. You know what I mean? Like we're that close to opening. And like, they all wanted to be involved five, five months later. You know what I mean? Like um, some of them got other jobs and cause they had to, right. Sure. But like, no one was like, nah, you know what? That's not interesting. People were like, let's make this work. Like, let's figure this out. And I think that's cool. I think we did a good job of selecting our staff, which is hard to do. Yeah. Um, but they proved us right. You know, they proved that we made a good choice. And I feel like we proved them right that, you know, like we're going to try to do right by you all. We said we were going to be a great place to work and we can't be right now, but we will be in the future. And I think you believe us. And I think we've shown you that, you know, we're not lying. Right. Yeah. So I think that's what it's about. Right. Is like, again, you can't choose. I was talking to a friend of mine about this last night. Like plans are very different than goals. Mm. Right. We talk about business plans mm -hmm. and Plans are one of my favorite quotes is like, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and so my plans for Nori bar have changed significantly. They changed before COVID multiple times. They changed because of COVID they've changed since COVID mm -hmm. and they're changing daily almost because of COVID. Right. Sure. Uh, like we opened today. We literally opened today. This is our third, tr third try at opening. <laughs> uh, and we're, I think we're officially open right now. Yeah. Successfully. For, for um, those of you who are watching in Louisville, can you tell us where it is? Yeah, so it's called Nore Bar, N-O-R-A-E-B-A-R. Um, we're in Nulu on Market Street, uh, 717 East Market Street, right across from Garage Bar, Galaxy, right next to the new Cuban restaurant, uh, La Bogadita de Mima. Um, black building set off the road, big patio out front. It's really cool. It's big, big and fancy on the inside, but it looks really small on the outside. So it's really deceptive, but, um, super cool. Just open, come check us out. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's just have a goal, right. And be willing to adapt your plans to that goal. So my goals for Nori bar haven't changed at all. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I want it to be a place that people want to go. I want it to be a place that people want to work. I want it to be profitable you know, I wanted to make a certain amount of money every year, top line, bottom line, right? Like those goals really haven't changed. Sure. Uh, when I think that will happen, the timeline has shifted and shifted and shifted and shifted, right? Yeah. Um, but again, some of that's my fault and some of it's not, right? Some of it is we could have done things faster or better. And some of it is there's a global pandemic, you know? <laughs> so you have to be willing to adjust your plans, but don't give up on your, your mission, your goals, your values. Um, yeah. yeah. You know? Values, right? Don't sell out. 
<laughs> you can make money if you, if you don't sell out on your values then you're not a sellout, right? So we haven't changed our values yet. We haven't changed our mission yet. So Zach, great pros of wisdom and wish you continued success on Noribar. Um, definitely to anyone who's watching in Louisville or visiting Louisville, do check out his bar. Um, Zach's social media profiles will be in the YouTube description. So please feel free to say hello. Um, a lovely friend of mine. Thank you so much, Zach. Cheers, Sheldon. It was, it was great to have this conversation. Uh, I'm happy it was recorded because I would have loved to have it either way. So, <laughs> Same here. All right. Take care. Cheers, buddy. Thanks.